Hey everybody, welcome back to Green Milk and Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Last week we reviewed X-Men number 25 called The Power and the Pendant with Richie Arturo and Carrie Harris. Uh, with Marvel Girl off at college and frankly getting very little airtime, a trend which continues in this issue, uh, the male X-Men faced the threat of Juan Meroz, uh, the treasure hunter known as El Tigre, and his allies uh, Ramon and Tolak. Uh, El Tigre had found the amulet of Kukulkan, which transformed him into the likeness of the god Kukulkan himself. Uh, and that's continued directly into this week's issue. Uh, so this week we'll be reviewing X-Men number 26, which is uncomfortably titled uh, Holocaust. <laughs> and uh, it's from <laughs> November 1966. And I am thrilled to welcome my regular co-host Regina. I'm sorry, my regular co-host Heather back. Uh, a, a semi-regular co-host Regina from uh, from the House of X. And, uh, and the incredible uh, writer Juan Pops has joined us this evening. So thank you all for being here with us. Uh, I'll have you. I'll have you each enter. Oh, oh, sorry, Heather. Go ahead. I said, I see how it is. I've been replaced. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> no, no, no. But I am very fond of both of you. Uh, so uh, I'll have you each introduce yourselves. Let's go in the order of Heather, Regina, and then Juan. Uh, if you let us know your name, your gender pronouns, let us know anything that you're working on that you're excited about right now. Uh, and then the question we have for today is: If you were given the powers of a god, what would you do? Uh, Heather, go ahead. So my name is Heather, and my pronouns are she, her. Um, not super working on anything. I'm finishing moving into a new place, so that's exciting. Um, and you have a new haircut. I do have a new haircut. <laughs> and if I were given the powers of a god, do I get to pick which god, or are we just talking just general god-like powers? I think you can interpret that however you like. Well, because my initial thought was doing a lot of really kind of silly things that I don't do because I'm scared of what it will do to my mortal body. <laughs> things like hike Mount Everest or, you know, <laughs> like skydiving. Just things like that, that terrify me because I am only human. But if I had the godlike powers, I would want to do those things. If we're talking like specific gods, my partner and I joke all the time that we are the personifications of Hades and Persephone. So I already am, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Regina, go ahead. Um, yes, I'm Regina. I'm the co-host of the House of X podcast. We are working on a special holiday edition. Hopefully it's going to be coming up as we can get everybody together that we're planning. Um, if I had the powers of a god, that is a great question. I've been thinking about it and I, I'm like, I know the PC answer. And the honest truth is if I could literally wipe out world hunger, I would. But then after that, I would totally be a vengeance God. And like all these people who do, you know, are just mean to other people, I would do things like make sure that they have plates that, you know, aren't flat or they always have like a table that's uneven, you know, just something to really like ruin their day that doesn't actually hurt them, but really messes up their energy flow. <laughs> <laughs> and then Juan, go ahead. Hi, my name is Juan Ponce, and uh, my pronouns are he, him. And if I had godlike powers, I thought about this one. I, I, I think like 
yeah, my PC answer would be like I kept them planted. Like I totally just like go like on a molecular level and like reform the planet and get everything back in order. And then like I would ask for a favor, like as a thank you, like free Medicare for everyone. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then I really love the vengeance God thing. That's awesome. I thought about it, but I was like, I don't know. But I wish I like I said it. That's so cool. <laughs> Well, uh, we, had this, um, we had this episode where we talked about Professor Xavier and I thought about it later and I was like, you know, I always say I would always do the right thing. Like I would be a superhero and use my powers for good, but I would not. <laughs> Straight up villain. It's fine. Yes. <laughs> uh, I have the beholder, right? It's all, it all, it's all in how the story is told. If you're getting vengeance on bad people, you could be the villain or the hero, I think. Uh, my name is Chad. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, we have a long trend in comic books of characters who find something and then get godlike powers, right? From Juggernaut to, in this issue, Kukul Khan. And I think there's a fascinating psychology, too. We immediately think about mortal things, right? Like, I'm going to, like, Heather, you can you could climb Mount Everest or you could create Mount Everest, right? <laughs> we have these spaces. That are... <laughs> so I... Make another one. I feel like I would very much tackle the issue related to global warming. And I feel like power corrupts. Like as much as I want to think that I would not end up some bad guy, I think it's very likely that that would happen at a particular point as, uh, as I think all of us would become a revenge God. Uh, I don't think I would be the narcissistic, I'm going to build myself a, a, a palace and make people worship me, God, which seems <laughs> to be the trend for a lot of comic book stories. Uh, so uh, uh, Juan has an upcoming uh, story in the Marvel Voices Communidad uh, uh, issue, which has been delayed a couple of times now, correct? It should be coming out, hopefully, around the time this podcast is released. Uh, we're recording... We're recording two hours early. Uh, Juan, can we begin there? Tell us a little bit, if you're able to, about the characters you'll be tackling in this upcoming uh, upcoming anthology and uh, and the story you're going to be sharing. Sure, sounds good. Yeah, uh, so I'm doing a story on Nina the Conjurer, the Sorcerer Supreme of the 1950s, and she's Brazilian. And Nina's going to be confronting Anhanga, the spirit, the nature spirit of uh, Brazilian folklore. And when I was approached by um, Samantha, like the amazing editor, I mean, sorry, Samantha, Sarah, Sarah, the amazing editor, she, she said like pretty much I could choose anyone I want. And I think I was one of the first people they must have reached out to because I think like anyone. And I was like, okay, cool. So I kind of was going towards maybe Nova or Ghostwriter, but I was like, you know what? I want to. I want something my editors like would enjoy. So I asked them, hey, what's like some characters you would like to work on? And they brought her up in like a list. And as soon as I saw her, I'm like, I want her, a Sorcerer Supreme of the 1950s, and she's Brazilian. Yes, that's the one. Everyone else is no. So when I came up with this story, I was like, so it's 616 canon. So and it's supposed to be a celebration of Latinx culture. And I'm like, what better way to celebrate Latinx culture than to put the 616 on the line and bring like an unstoppable force in the mid-1950s and pretty much only one person has the power sort of to maybe take down essentially a god. And that, that's pretty much the story. It's Anhanga, this amazing nature spirit that's not happy. And 
the human race is right now on the line and only one person might be able to stop her and that's nina the conjurer so for our listeners uh we primarily cover x-men here obviously but i i have a breadth of knowledge across the marvel universe there's a series from a few years ago called dr strange and the sorcerer's supreme which is a 12 issue run it's well worth reading and it introduces uh sorcerer supremes from across various uh time periods it's very multi multicultural there's a lot of representation uh that's where we first meet kushala who's become kind of a popular character who's a native american woman uh, nina the conjurer shows up there and i my my favorite thing about nina specifically is her style i uh i love her look uh she's got a she's got a lot of uh, love for her family, her brother in particular. Uh, what was it about Nina that uh, that you enjoyed? Tell us a little bit about her personality and powers. What stood out to you with her? I, I really liked her swagger. Like, I love the way she carried herself in that book, especially her uh, relationship with uh, Kushala. And, like, I like how those two just bounced off one another. And I like how Nina recognizes the strength in others. And I wanted to play off of that. I wanted to, her... I wanted a character that has all this power, but is super smart and knows her limitations. And from there continues to fight knowing that the odds are against her. And that's kind of how I based this like story is that there's essentially a God now challenging her and she's limited as to what she can do. Cause she's that smart and she knows that. So how is she going to overcome it? So anyway, that's what attracted me to her is, is that she's really smart and she knows her surroundings and she knows how to carry herself in any situation. I adore that. I feel like any writer given an opportunity to pick a character, everyone's going to go Miles Morales in this issue, right? Like top tier. <laughs> uh, I, I love that you chose this woman who uh, a lot of people aren't familiar with and you get to really flesh her out and do this incredible story. Uh, Regina, have you uh, have you had a familiarity with Nina the Conjurer? I can see you loving her a lot. Yes. Um, I love her aesthetic, you know, her gun and her sword and, you know, her mm -hmm. little pants. I love her pants. <laughs> I, I hate dresses. I just can't. <laughs> but um, I I had read actually that run with her and um, in the Sorcerer's Supreme book with Kushala. And I really love both of them together. Just both of them just have this, you know, just this very austere, almost beauty with the way that their costumes are designed and presented and then with their personalities. And I just feel like they would have a sense of sisterhood just kind of from culturally, just from how they come from. So I, I really love both characters quite a bit. Now this story, Juan, did it require a lot of research for you? Uh, yeah, I had to go back and uh, read uh, the Sorcerer Supreme. And uh, I, I did a lot of uh, studying of uh, Brazilian um, folklore and other folklore as well. I wanted to get a good grasp on um, creating a challenge for her that has some resonance with the culture and um, of Brazilian people. And I also did read some Doctor Strange. I went back and read a Brian K. Vaughn's story and a few other ones to try to make sure I, I was able to grasp the idea of magic, but also the challenges and limitations of it in the Marvel Universe. So yeah just a bit yeah like a good a good couple like weeks of going back and trying to get all the good stuff out yeah of sorcerer supremes uh now before we move on to your other work regina or heather did you guys have questions about uh, juan's upcoming story it sounds oh. great i can't wait yeah. um i've been waiting for this book <laughs> since they first started the marvel voices series i was like when's it my community's turn <laughs> mm -hmm. so i'm i'm really really excited to um to actually get it in my little hands and 
turn those pages. <laughs> I, I'm really excited as well. My favorite thing is kind of obscure ca characters getting a chance to shine, uh, especially in the hands of storytellers who really care about them a lot. Um, uh, you also both just taught me, I've, I've been saying Kushala, and you both say Kushala, which I think is probably correct. <laughs> so I you. have no idea, but that's how I've always pronounced it. <laughs> now, uh, Juan, you've done a lot of work with uh, with other uh, indie work across various lines. And I had a chance to mm -hmm. read a lot of your work as it was available online. Now, my very favorite story of yours, uh, it was called The World's Strongest. Mm -hmm. uh, I could pitch it, but let me let me have you tell people a little, little bit about, uh, about The World's Strongest. It was so wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love that story. Yeah, it's, it's the story of Samantha Pierce, the world's strongest human, and uh, her daily struggle to balance family, work life, and being well, the world's strongest hero. Uh, in that issue, the it's their first time dealing with supervillains that are just the strongest her and how she deals with that situation. Uh, what I love most about her is she is wearing all of the hats. She is the superhero, but she's working full time and she's got the happy husband and the adorable kid and seeing like a female character in a role where we almost always see men and having it be a woman of color at the same time mm -hmm. uh, was just a wonderful, like feel good, happy story. Um, uh, it was it was really fun. Uh, I, I, I loved the sense of family there almost more than anything. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I was going for. Uh, I wanted a lot of the family stuff to stand out mm, just as much as like the whole superhero butt kicking stuff. Uh, and I, I wanted her struggle to to be seen like how sure she could like lift the building essentially, but she also has to deal with um, raising her daughter and, and and at the same time working in an environment that's hard on her because she is a woman of color and how, what kind of toll that takes on her psychologically, but how she overcomes it and how she like every day pushes herself and uh, perseveres. Yeah. Uh, and then the other story I loved of yours, and there's, there's several obviously, is a story called uh, Family Recipe. Regina, did you have a chance to take a look <laughs> at Family Recipe? Yes, that was actually the first story I ever read by Juan and I really love it. Um, just the little touchstones culturally and some of it I, you know, I experienced when I was younger, but um, sadly I moved away and I don't have that kind of connection in my day to day. So it's nice to see it on a page, just this family, you know, working together and um, making good food. Juan, <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about Family Recipe. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I had... My mom, I, I asked her one day because I had this idea for a story about tamales, and I and I told her, "Hey, hey mom, how do you make them?" And I'm like, "Can you give me this recipe? I have have this idea of uh, of tamales." And she's like, well, "Like, why would you want to know?" I'm like, "Because they're like essential to our culture and our our family for generations." I'm like, "I'm like literally because I I was born in Mexico and I come from like a rural village, and uh, we I mean we we harvest the leaves to this day and." tamales are they're they're essential they're not just like this cool holiday thing they're like literally the masa is part of our culture our daily life and i was like this is something that right here i'm now in los angeles i'm a city kid but it, we to this day we get those leaves and we do this and it means something and it's carried down from your mom and her mom and you taught me how to make them so it's just 
it's something we're going to carry on. And it's, it's a piece of us, a piece of our family that gets carried forward. And that's what I wanted to get through. And it takes like literally everybody together to make. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I read all of your work uh, a few weeks ago, and then a few days ago, I took my kids to see Encanto. And this isn't a, a plug for Disney, but uh, this this film was so beautifully orchestrated around family and individuality, and we had these characters who celebrated. For, for their strength and their vulnerability with different skin tones and different relationships. And some of your work, uh, Juan, as I was watching this film, showed up in my mind and I was weeping and my son's like, dad, why are you crying? <laughs> it was just, uh, I love that we're in an age where we get to see more stories like this being told. Uh, and the irony of today, as we go back and analyze a 60s comic, where, where, where it's all white characters, uh, primarily by white writers, and uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's a different time period, but we get to come forward to now. Uh, I don't know. Any thoughts on that, you guys? Well, I, I re- that's what I really like about um, Voices Comunidades. I was like, I, I suspected it was going to come up. Like, no one told me, but it's just it just felt like it was going to happen, and I always had my fingers crossed I would be part of it because it, it was something that's very important to comics, in my opinion, because it's like Latinx creators celebrating Latinx characters and getting to carry our voices like through the page in, in this way that we're embracing our culture and, and, and like really giving this because I got to all right so I got to read it already obviously <laughs> and <laughs> when you see it, it <laughs> there's a lot of celebration of the history and it it, it was is awesome to be part of it and it's it, it was really cool to know that we have this and we're not just moving in like the right direction but I think we've been moving in the right direction for a good couple of years now and it's so good to just see it right there and and have it embraced on the page with so many of us of the community right there. And that's just, it's cool. And I like the way, I like where comics are right now. I like that there's so many different voices from so many different underrepresented communities and so many cool new stories are now being told because of that. And that's just awesome. I'm so excited to read it. I, uh, I can't wait. These, uh, these new voices issues mean, I think a lot to a lot of people to see uh, a company this size embracing individuality, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into writing, and then uh, what was it like to get this call from Marvel one day? It must uh, it must be like, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I read Persepolis in college, and it, it like I remember it was like my first year in English class, and they give it to us, and uh, it wouldn't leave my head. And then like a year later, I just I I, I read it again, and then I read Mouse and. I watched from their Watchmen and I just started reading comics like crazy. And it, it just so happened there was a comic book store right across the street. So from there, I, I just started, uh, I became a, a, you know, a Wednesday warrior. And eventually during my last year of college, I just hated law. <laughs> and <laughs> it just blew. And then, but uh, comics were like, they were everything to me at that point. And I didn't know it, but all those study bricks I was taking with those books, I was actually studying to be a writer. And the last year, I, I just wrote a script for fun um, based on the, what's that book? The Michael Bryant, the Bendis book, the Words and Pictures. I just, I learned how to write from there. And then I got Denny O'Neill's book and I I studied that and near the end of college. And I just told myself, you know what, as soon as I graduate, this is it for me. This is the nothing 
gives me as much happiness as this. So that's what I focused on after college. And from there, I, uh, I took about a year or two to hone my craft. Like I kept writing scripts that no one will ever see. <laughs> not only I, 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 I will see. <laughs> and, um, and from there, I, I, uh, I finally took the leap and I contacted uh, Ariana Mar. And I'm like, hey, I have uh, this, this, this uh, story about the Loch Ness Monster. If you're interested, she's like, okay, cool. Where's the art team? I'm like, okay, well, I'll get on that. <laughs> and she, she was like my guide and uh from there I, I i talked to beverly johnson and uh we made that story and i haven't stopped since and uh it's it's been good i've made a lot of cool shorts and i've gotten to work with a few publishers um fortunately some stuff's not out yet so i can't talk about it or some stuff couldn't come out and i really can't talk about that and uh, <laughs> I remember then when I got the call from Marvel, uh, yeah, just I think I have the picture on my phone of me crying because I just have been have worn a Marvel shirt that day to work. <laughs> and it was it was awesome. It was it was really cool because it was like all that hard work and you think no one's listening or reading or whatever. And yeah, you know, they told me like, oh, we, we love this. We we think you're perfect for this. We love your voice. And it was like, oh, <laughs> So what I'm being someone's reading it. <laughs> so that was awesome. <laughs> that was cool. I feel like for so many of us, we work the day job and then we do the thing that we are passionate about on the side, right? And I, I love mm -hmm. hearing stories about people who get to make their passion their profession. Uh I, I mean, here we have three podcasters talking to you, right? We all have a day job and lives and we podcast <laughs> about the things we love about. Uh I, I, but I love hearing that story. What is your uh relationship with the X-Men, Juan? And side question, who is your favorite X-Man and X-Villain? Okay, so my relationship with the X-Men, it's pretty much your your basic millennial probably X-Men fan, which is the animated series. Like I, as a little kid, that was that was everything. And it's funny because um, my favorite X-Men is Wolverine. But I remember as a kid, he was so pissed off. I was like, I couldn't stand him. Like, dude, like, I remember when um, the episode with uh, Apocalypse, like, he just got dealt with so quick. And I'm like, why'd you rush at him? Like, what, what were you thinking? I mean, you don't even know what he can do. And, um, <laughs> but as I, as I started reading comics, he became my favorite because he was so nuanced. And yeah, he's cool with the claws and everything. But I love all, I love all the, like, little silent moments with him and i love how how vague his, when his past was so vague and like we, everything was implied and i was like oh yeah that's so rad and like i mean now we know a little more but it's still cool he's i just think he's such a cool character layered and probably my favorite x-men villain would also be it's pretty i know it's like the basic answer but i love magneto i just do the same thing he's so nuanced he's got so much layers and sometimes you like as bad as he is and they have those issues where he does something terrible. Like, like you just, you can't wrap your head around it. You're like, yeah, he's, he's evil to the core. And then he does like one thing where you're like, yeah, okay. I could see why he do that. Like, and he's somehow, okay, cool again. And I think that's, <laughs> and that's why he's like my favorite villain, him and Wolverine. Those are my two, my two favorites. I love that so much. Uh, Regina, do you have any other questions for Juan before we delve into today's issue? I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I'm just so happy that he's here <laughs> and I've gotten to hear a little bit more direct from the horse's mouth. Um, I did want, I do want to mention that, you know, like he was saying, um, you know, we're seeing more and more Latinx representation and I mean, 
I don't think I rant about it too much. I I have my moments, but you know, way back in like the eighties, you know, our community was really like, you know, we're starting to come forward. Like we've got all these, you know, Latinx actors and actresses and like musicians that are coming up and we're going to, you know, we, back then we called it La Onda, right? Like this is the wave. This is what we called it, La Onda. We were going to crash into the American scene and we were going to be, you know, more accepted and more integrated. And then like, it just disappeared. Like, <laughs> you know, and then we had JLo for like a long time and that was about it. <laughs> but now we are, you know, we're seeing, you know, stories like the book of life and like Encanto and Coco. And now um, Maya and the three is on Netflix. And when I was looking at the story and I was thinking about Maya and the three, it, it's very interesting how different they are um, because something that was really shocking if you haven't seen it is how honest the storytelling is like it doesn't shy away from issues like death and you know the end and family and sacrifice and self-sacrifice even i've never seen that in a children's show and i was i was like oh they're gonna come back oh <laughs> they're not coming back <laughs> so it was just very interesting but um you know being raised catholic i have always literally had priests saying how evil like the Aztec empire and the Mayan empires were and, you know, their human sacrifice and, you know, they didn't respect the sanctity of life. And I was like, you're looking at this completely wrong because you're Catholic. I get it. But we have great reverence for life because we honor the sanctity of death. So when I look at stories like this, which they don't really get into that very much, but it just kind of made me think about all these things that are percolating in the background. Um, and then we have this story, you know, in by a, you know, Mexican um, creator who is writing this story about the sanctity of life and death and sacrifice and love, really. And then we have this story, which is about power and domination. And it's just really interesting to when you look at the comparison between the two. But anyway, that's all I wanted to say before we get started. <laughs> Uh, and want anything else that you would like to share? Um, yeah, just uh, you could. Right now, my focus is uh, getting the word out about Marvel Voices Comunidades. Like, I, I read it already, and it's it's lovely, and it's a great celebration of Marvel history and its characters, and yeah, Latinx creators. It's really cool. I'm I'm really glad to be part of it. I, uh, I'm really excited to see what comes next for you. I'm a new fan of yours, but having read all of your work recently, I'm, I'm really impressed by the sincerity and the tones of family. But I saw you write robots and family recipes and karate foxes <laughs> and, and you know, powerful women. And I'm really excited to see uh, what comes next. Uh, uh, you've got yourself a handful of fans, and I hope we can help spread the word about the, the, the incredible work you're doing. Thank you so much. Heather, anything from you before we start? No, I think I'm good. Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. So let me just recap briefly for those of you specifically here in the room with me. Uh, last week on our podcast, uh, and, and you guys haven't had a chance to hear this episode yet, I had a lot of anxiety going in. We have a story in which I am a, a white male, I'm gay, but I'm white, uh, who, who is leading a discussion about uh, the portrayal of characters um, 
And it's a fun issue. X-Men number 25 is fun. Uh, but with, with Carrie and Richie and Arturo and I, we kind of created this safe space to be able to talk about some crazy things. One of the issues we brought up uh, in our podcast last time was how this these early 60s comics are almost all white male characters and obviously white male creators. And it's wonderful to see diversity in the books. Uh, we have these characters from a fictional country, uh, but they're being portrayed as villains. And when you are only seeing characters who frankly look white, even though they are people of color, acting as villains, and there's no heroes of color, uh, it, it becomes problematic. And we we had some really lovely discussions around that. So if you guys want to bring anything up today, I am all listening ears, uh, for particularly for people who have this experience of, of having uh, lived in this society as uh, people of color. Uh, I, I uh, invite you to, if you feel comfortable, share whatever you feel comfortable sharing uh, based on our conversation today. So I hope we can create that same safe space for people to share and be open. Um, uh, but thank you so much for being here. It's my honor to uh, to uh, join with the three of you. Now, as we look at the cover of X-Men 26, uh, let's hear some of your thoughts. We have Angel kind of holding a... a I'm sorry, we have Cyclops holding an unconscious angel and it's a little bit hot, I think. <laughs> as, uh, as Beast and Iceman rush away and Kukul Khan uh, looms in the background. What were some of your thoughts on this cover? You know, it's really colorful <laughs> and it's not colorful in an overwhelming way, um, but you can see like the pyramids behind it, which I actually kind of appreciate because sometimes you don't see things like that. Um, but they are telling the story about this character who is from this particular area um, and claiming Mesoamerican, you know, historical artifacts and things like that. So it's nice to see that stuff in the background instead of just kind of like a generic background. So I actually really like the cover. <laughs> uh, Juan and Heather? Uh, Iceman. I mean, oh, so, oh, no, just I, Iceman looks overwhelmed. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> he's scratching his head. Yeah, oh, what am I going to do next? <laughs> That's it. All right. Yeah, they're sorry. No, you're good. Um, I was just going to say, I also like the color, especially because most of the people that the X Men are fighting throughout the series are such different colors to differentiate and at least on my screen um he echoes some of the same colors as the x-men uniforms and so it's interesting because it almost doesn't set him apart quite as much as the quote-unquote villain as other issues so uh, Khan's off in the background, but if you guys look at the final page of X-Men 24, look how amazing he looks here. I mean, X-Men 25. <laughs> when you get him close up, he's so cool looking. We were commenting about how he's like our favorite costume in the whole series <laughs> so far. Uh, it doesn't look as impressive when he's far away, but he's he's pretty fucking cool, actually, I think. <laughs> we, uh, we have, uh, uh, as we open to page one, we have the issue called Holocaust, and we recognize, I want to be very clear, that that's a very sensitive term based on uh, World War II. Now, the word Holocaust does have a definition as, you know, people being wiped out in violent ways, basically. 
but the cultural association of that word is difficult. Marvel, uh, X-Men specifically in the Age of Apocalypse had a villain that they initially named Holocaust. Uh, do you guys remember that character from the Age of Apocalypse? Yes. Uh, and it's an uncomfortable name and they later changed his name to Nemesis uh, because of the controversy. Um, as we read the credits, we have uh, edited by Stan Lee, script by Roy Thomas, art by Werner Roth, ink by or inks by <coughs> excuse me Dick Ayers, lettering by Sam Rosen, and uh, Mayan headdresses by good old Irving Forbush's back. He's the uh, fictional Marvel guy we've talked about. In the bottom left corner, we have a reference in the books for the first time uh, about no prizes. Do, are you guys any of you familiar with what a no prize is? Tell us what a no prize is. <laughs> Basically, a no prize is if you um, are able to answer the question about something, you don't get a prize for it, but you get recognition for it. <laughs> <laughs> so Stanley and Jack Kirby used to be very interactive with their fans, particularly in the Fantastic Four in the letters pages, if you go back to the 60s comics. And when someone would write in and say, hey, you messed up, they would send them an envelope that had no prize inside. And it's it was getting awarded a no prize. And eventually they started associating with if if you found the if you found the error, you also had to explain it away. So, you know, here's why this person didn't remember that person's name, or here's why this thing was missing off the table. And if you could do that, here's the so you get an envelope, and on the envelope it said, and I quote. Congratulations, this envelope contains a genuine Marvel Comics no prize, which you have just won, handle with care. And then you'd open it up and there is nothing inside the envelope. <laughs> and uh, they did this for a really long time until people started getting really, really like too much about it. They were, people started getting very obsessive and they kind of put a stop to it and it kind of ran out of popularity. But all through the 70s and 80s and even in the 90s, you'll see reference to no prizes. You'll see like people writing in letters to the letters page and being like, I found this, now send me my no prize! Exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, so kind of a fun reference. Now, at the beginning of this issue, we see Professor X uh, with Cerebro uh, re recognizing the threat of Kukul Khan, who looks really scary. Apparently, Cerebro can project images now. We have this giant image of <laughs> Kukul Khan being projected, even though he's not uh, a mutant. Uh, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on this first page. The detail on Kukul Khan, again, is just fantastic. Yeah, I really love his costume, actually. I think it's great. The little hey. emblem of like the person, the mask, the face that's on his headdress, it like changes. <laughs> so like, if you look at the cover and then you look at the first page, they do not look the same. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it reflects his mood. Maybe, like on the cover, it almost looks like a little girl, like with like little pigtails. Almost. And then on this page, it's like smooth and like, it looks, annoyed <laughs> maybe he is annoyed because somebody's messing with his mind so <laughs> now Juan you recently had a chance to research you said Brazilian gods are you familiar with the god Kukulkan in mythology no I I, I like didn't find out about him until actually until I did research for this I so yeah I, I wasn't actually aware to be honest uh and this is not a test D did you learn anything about him <laughs> that you found fascinating that he was a hero from what I read so I him but here's a villain but maybe I, I didn't read enough. <laughs> I kind of, 
I kind of see Kukulkan and Quetzalcoatl as kind of like like Zeus, right, in Greek mythology. He has a Roman counterpart. And I think Kukulkan is kind of the same. Like he's the the Mayan counterpart to the Aztec god, right? So there's this interesting relationship between the two because they're the same, but they're not the same. But they have similar history and background. And then there was actually a historical character or a historical person, kind of like Jesus. You know, we have the the Midrash about Jesus, right? And then we have the Bible version of Jesus. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting that, you know, there's a God and then there's actually the man. And then at some point it kind of gets muddled which one was which when within some of the stories. So that that gets really interesting. I used to love Mesoamerican like history. I used to read about it all the time. So I had a little familiarity with this, but it was interesting reading about it again. I was like, oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> and he is the villain in this story. He's also very like a very narcissistic, angry god, but he's also kind of a righteous god, right? He's he's returned to find his entire culture is wiped out, and his his goal is to restore his culture, which also means restoring his power at the expense of others while mass mind controlling people. So he is still a villain, but uh, but I kind of sympathize with him a little bit. Uh, Juan, what were some of your thoughts on Kukulkan's characterization in this issue? Well. Like, this could be the writer in me. I thought about this for a cool minute. Like, I kind of, this is going to be weird, but I kind of see, I don't know if they did this. To, I don't think, like I said, probably the writer in me, but I kind of got some conquistador vibes a little off of him. Like, something about the the, the planing on his chest, like, the it's iron. It's like a metal. And I, I associate that more with the conquistadors. And another thing is, um, I kind of still get some strong El Tigre off of him like i feel like this is almost a, just a bit like another manifestation of El Tigre. like i feel like yeah there's that side of him where it's the whole i want to bring my mayan people back to worship me <laughs> like but i feel like that's actually more of an El Tigre move right there so i don't know if this is uh, like maybe that's a little bit something relating to that like maybe they put it a little bit on purpose some conquistador in him and is that a, re a representation that this isn't fully like a rebirth of this god anyway that's what i got from just that image <laughs> yeah we have a long history of marvel gods in marvel pantheons from zeus to odin to kukulkan where they see mortals as very much lesser than them and something to kind of be stepped on uh but i do think yeah i think you're right there's a lot of psychology of el tigre uh in this character who we got to see his extreme narcissism and arrogance in the last issue uh heather what were your thoughts on kukulkan as a villain here um, I mean, I'm not as well versed in Central America and South America um, culture, but I do see what Juan is saying about the conquistador echoes. Um, but I think that, you know, people expect gods to be these great, all-powerful, all-knowing thing, people. And I think that Kukulkan is definitely more of along the lines of Zeus because he wants what he wants exactly when he wants it, and he wants his people to 
do exactly what he wants. And if they don't, he's going to punish them or strike them down. Yeah. And so I think that it's a very interesting villain choice. Um, it's fascinating, but especially because, you know, when most people think of Marvel and gods, they think of Thor and Loki. And Kukul Khan is not either of them, really. But I think he's a really interesting villain. I think he's the most powerful villain the X-Men have faced thus far, uh, with the exception perhaps of The Stranger, but he's definitely uh, got a higher power set, even more than Magneto. Um, as we get into pages two and three, uh, now last issue we saw El Tigre and, and his his cronies, they call him, or call them the other two characters, uh, break into the museum so he could complete his pendant of power and complete his transformation. Now, uh, he had mind-controlled a security guard into holding a gun on Cyclops, uh, Cyclops blasts the gun out of the security guard's hand and his optic blast, I think it's the same in your issues probably, is yellow? Is his, is his blast yellow mm -hmm. in your books? Mm -hmm. So it's normally red, obviously. Now my theory, I think I get a no prize for this. Kukulkan <laughs> <laughs> radiates solar energy, right? And Cyclops can power up through solar energy. So I think the continuity gap here is he gets an optic blast that's yellow because of the increased amount of solar energy off of uh, Kukulkan. So Marvel, if you're listening, I expect my no prize in the mail, please. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as uh, as we see Kukulkan turn on uh, turn on Cyclops, he then has to battle uh, his two men who want to uh, fight back against him. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts on these interactions between uh, Kukulkan and Ramon and Tolak. Uh, I think first of all, poor security guard. What did he do? <laughs> right? <laughs> he just he just slaps him. I'll explain it later. <laughs> <laughs> So as, uh, as Ramon and Tolak kind of turn on Kukulkan, they see how powerful he is, and they rush to try to get the pendant out of his chest, and uh, Kukulkan is not having it. So they they get their bolas out, they've got swords drawn, they are ready to, to take him down. Uh, they're not standing for El Tigre's abuse any longer. And uh, what does Kukulkan do to teach them a lesson? <laughs> Thonk. <laughs> <laughs> He unleashes the very energy of the blazing sun itself. <laughs> yeah, this guy's powerful, man. He like radiates massive solar energy and like sets the room on fire. And then he immediately forms like a ship out of star energy so he can return to uh, his home country of San Rico. Uh, uh, pretty impressive, frankly, his power set. He's oh. he's strong if he's unleashing the power of the sun itself. That that panel on um, the last panel on, on page four, that's great. That's good stuff right there. Yeah, where, I actually really like that where he's like, he looks like he's rising up, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I really like yeah. that. I, I was doing the issue form. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. Yeah, when he's rising up and in the background and yeah, oh, it looks, I love it. I love that power shot right there. It's really good. He, uh, so the fiction, the, the country of San Rico is fictional. It only appears in Marvel Comics in these two issues. It's, San Rico has never made another appearance in 60 years of Marvel continuity, which is kind of crazy because they have a lot of fictional countries. But he's going back to the source of his power, uh, shooting his ship through the air where he's going to go back and uh, and reclaim what was once his, which, again, I think is kind of a, a noble cause. 
Now, the X-Men are all unconscious all over the mansion, and they're kind of slowly waking up from uh, their various injuries. They got defeated by, by a couple dudes last <laughs> with some bolas and some sleeping guards last uh, last issue, which is kind of surprising. Um, as we as we jump into kind of the X Men regrouping here, uh, what were some of your thoughts on these interactions between uh, the wounded X Men? Like, this kind of goes back to the last issue. But so none of their none of the villains like their equipment was powered up. Like it was just they literally got taken down by bolas and uh, just some uh, darts. <laughs> Sometimes the simplest uh, weapons are the most effective weapons. True. <laughs> when you're training in the when you're training in the danger room against lions, you forget to look for the mice sometimes, right? Mm, okay. No pressure right there. <laughs> uh, so okay. we should. Oh, I'm sorry, Juan. Go ahead. Oh, no, just that I was thinking like when he got like really good thing that a little spear did not have any poison. Good thing it was just sleeping. So. <laughs> Yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty fortunate in that in that regard. The X Men. I mean, Beast says it all. This was not our finest hour. <laughs> uh, we get to see Jean Grey for just a couple of pages. We go back to Metro College where she is taking tests. Uh, Heather, uh, I know how much you are enjoying Ted Roberts these last few issues. Uh, what <laughs> here? Well, it's even better now that I know that he is friends with Cal Rankin. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Mr. Bipolar Angry himself. Uh, the Mimic is at the school. So we last saw the Mimic a few issues back when he had his mind wiped. Uh, Calvin Rankin is enrolled in Metro College and he's befriended Gene's love interest. Well, potential love interest, Ted Roberts. <laughs> And uh, he does not remember anything, but he's determined to remember because he knows he knows Jean Grey from somewhere. Uh, Ted is still being a little bit narcissistic and a little bit a little bit uh, uh, misogynistic in the way that he's flirting with Jean. But Jean seems to like it a little bit. <laughs> it's ridiculous when she's like, but I wouldn't mind a rain check. And he goes, it'll be raining at eight tonight and I'll pick you up then. It's, like, yeah, not, it's not a question. <laughs> But I also love when the librarian says, I hope you'll both be very happy. Now, will you please keep your voices down? <laughs> like real MVP right there. <laughs> Regina, are you familiar with the Ted Roberts character? Not until this issue. <laughs> he seems like a peach. Sarcasm, sarcasm. <laughs> he's he's around for eight or so issues back then. He has a brother who's a supervillain. We'll be getting to him in a few issues. Uh, and then he hasn't really come back much. So he's kind of an obscure old X-Men gem uh, from way back when. Now, Professor X has called Jean Grey and asked her to pick up some books uh, to bring them back to the mansion because they're a little in over their heads. Uh, so Jean rushes back to the school. Uh, she's happy to see her friends, uh, but a little worried that she's kind of been forgotten, She, which frankly she has. She hasn't been on the cover in the last two issues. <laughs> uh, but Professor X is able to do some uh, some research here and figure out uh, where Kukulkan has come from uh, for the next few pages and kind of tell us what we, uh, what we see in the issue. So... He's talking about how, you know, the legend of the deadly curse of the pendant, that probably was the basis of it. It was probably a volcanic eruption, which happened at the same time. Um, but then Warren's like, oh, hey, Jean's still in love with Scott. And Scott's like, hmm, 
I'm still in love with Jean. And Jean's like, oh, Cyclops. Because, <laughs> you know, angst, angst, angst. Um, and then the boys all head off to South America. And Scott Summers makes a momentous decision that as soon as the mission is ended, nothing on earth will keep him from telling Jean Grey how he feels. <laughs> so, you know, super precious, something to look forward to. Um, but then in South America, Kukulkan is calling all of the people of Mayan descent to him. And he's like, we're going to restore the Mayan kingdom to greatness and give it mastery over the entire world. And then with a dramatic gesture of his mighty hands, um, he clears off a, plume, a giant plumed serpent, which is the sacred symbol of Kukulkan. And he also clears off the Mayan pyramids and all sorts of things like that. And he's like, okay, hey, now everyone needs to come and help with this. The descendants of the great Mayan race will be forced to answer my irresistible commands. And so all the people are headed that way to help with the glory of Kukulkan and his city. And right about then is when the X-Men arrive in San Rico. <laughs> so uh, Khan's, uh power set here is actually pretty impressive. He's tossing like fire around, clearing whole sections of jungle, raising pyramids uh and then it gets corny because uh the sound effects of his power set are swoosh and whoosh <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing uh what did you guys what did you guys think of uh of kukulkan's arrival in san rico and like how powerful he is here and uh, they did a good job building him up the solar sphere i he i was like okay how are they gonna even go they got they just got taken down by like a dart and this this guy <laughs> <laughs> And and the, he made like uh, that's like going back just a bit like I I love the the um Stan's note about the solar sphere how he just um he just says like oh you know for all all of you like science uh, experts out there like <laughs> we were gonna explain this but uh, only a Mayan like I think so like only a Mayan god could uh, drive such a vehicle. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I like he just, he just created like a sun car like that's so cool and then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah this, yeah and then well, yeah just him coming in there and just burning through the like the forest like nothing and just uh, revealing all these temples that were hidden like yeah I don't it, his part like if this was wrestling they just did a great <laughs> job at building him up like <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah this is like the ultimate heel. <laughs> Uh, Regina, let's hear your thoughts on Kukul Khan here. Well, I, you know, again, the buildup is great. We see him doing all this really cool stuff and he's like, you know, hey, people, come on, we're fixing to rebuild what we were before. But the art, like, so when he raises this giant idol, right, out of the ground, it's not Mayan at all. Like that is no, just no, not at all. Like who, who came up with this design? <laughs> because that's not anything like the feathered serpent that we see in our iconography. So, and it's disappointing because actually I've been pretty impressed that 
for the 60s that so much care went into creating what we see on the page and some of the design mm-hmm. work and you know the background and you know even if it's not like 100% like what i would think is acceptable for the 60s not bad and then we see the feathered serpent and i'm like no <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's fun for phallic purposes but not for like you know actual Mesoamerican purposes. Like it's not working for me. (laughs) We've got some conversations on the phallic imagery to come in a few pages, but the temple itself for those that are, that are not able to look at the book, it's, it's a large uh, structure with kind of a snake mouth cavern at the top. There's a giant glowing diamond on the snake's head. And then like a long staircase leading up to the snake's mouth. Uh, and uh, Kukulkan kind of takes his position on the throne. Uh, on page nine, he is sitting on his throne, totally manspreading. Like <laughs> legs are as far apart as possible with his like loincloth hanging down in between. There's, uh, I don't know, <laughs> some discomfort. He also immediately starts mind controlling the populace. There's people gathering gold. There's an army forming out front. Uh, it's almost a little rem- reminiscent of when uh, uh, Magneto and the Brotherhood took over uh, the, the, was it Costa? Oof, I can't remember the name of the country, uh, mm-hmm. that they take over in, in one of the early X-Men books. It'll come to me in just a minute. Uh, but it's almost reminiscent they, cause they immediately raise a flag and like station an army outside, uh, which, you know, if you're going to control a country, that's a good way to protect your base, I suppose, but mind control is not a super ethical way to get people to, uh, to like you. Now, when the X-Men are flying to, uh, uh, well, when they land in San Rico, they have to kind of go look for Kukulkan. They're leaving Professor X behind and they jump in a boat in a river and we immediately get just, <laughs> I don't know, there's, uh, we talked about uh, in, in last episode, it's almost like the 60s writers kept a list of like destinations that would be fun to have adventures in, like underwater <laughs> Atlantis, Egyptian pyramids. Ooh, we got to do a Mayan issue. And and when they're in the Amazon, of course, you got to take a boat down the river and be attacked by animals, right? Uh, they do uh, well, specify that the X-Men are super endowed. Did you notice that? I did yes. notice that. And it's all the boys there too, so... <laughs> Being someone who was super endowed myself, I wasn't going to comment, but. <laughs> That's very classy of you, Chad. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, uh, Juan, will you tell us a little bit about pages 11 and 12, uh, the X-Men versus the their their animal friends? This is my, probably my favorite. Yeah, like right after the whole stand uh, note on the, on the solar sphere, this is my favorite part, like the battle of the animals. That was cool like um i like i like how the jaguar just comes at him and the little part was snarl and he just like claws up in the air oh that's adorable i love it and and, and important that i also feel bad for it the way uh angel just uh, like tosses them out there and then um like I really, it. yes <laughs> oh and then um oh and then also i like i like how iceman uh contains like that's so smart of him the way he just creates that uh that little animal control thing i don't know what that is like a like a big old wrench or whatever it's an ice fork ice fork yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's quick on his feet i like that and then um i i my favorite part like hopefully i'm not jumping too much ahead it's um it's just when uh he's trying to reach up and uh it turns out to be a giant snake (laughs) the uh the the constrictor oh that's good it's like (laughs) yeah like just a big old like it's all 
it doesn't look like the rest of the jungle, but he's all sliding through it. Like, <laughs> like he's Tarzan. Like, like he's in that Disney Tarzan movie. Just, yeah. And then, and then the way he's just hopping on the, um, what are they? Uh, the Caymans. That was great. Yeah. I loved it. I love the animal interaction. Yes. So my son, who's 10, wants to be a conservationist when he grows up. And he's very about animal care. And as he was reading over my shoulder in this part, he was like, what are they doing to the Jaguar? He was <laughs> mad. And then we got to the Caymans. So the X-Men crash their boat and it wrecks. And the Beast is hopping around. He jumps on a Cayman pet. And he's like, that Cayman did nothing to him. He was so angry. <laughs> he's like, he's like, they're in the animal's habitat attacking the animals. And those animals did nothing. Uh, it, it's, it's a lot. We, we get an interesting glimpse into Angel's psychology, too, on page 11. So just kind of reading his thought bubble as he's flying above the boat. He says... How can I explain to any earthbound beings, even a mutant, the indescribable joy of flying? This is why I was born, to soar, to feel the air racing by my wings, uh, which I think tells us a little bit uh, about Angel. Uh, what did you guys think of that thought bubble? You know, Angel, I'm sorry, Heather, go ahead. I, I was just saying, I felt kind of bad for him because like, it's one of those things where he doesn't fully fit in with, the other mutants because he can fly and they can't but he doesn't fully fit in with anything that flies because he's also at least partially human and so it's kind of like he doesn't really have a real true community yeah he he's the guy who straps his wings down all the time right regina what were you gonna say I was just going to say, you know, out of the original five X-Men, I always found Angel to be kind of useless because, you know, like an eagle, when it's flying, it has a, you know, it has talons, first of all, and a beak, and it's a badass. And I'm like, Angel, you don't have any, you know, until he his transformation, he didn't have any offensive capabilities. He just, I just felt like you're flying around. Cyclops could shoot you down. Jean Grey could just you know, knock your wings out from under you. Beast could tear your wings. Like your wings are very fragile. And really you don't like, besides swooping around, what do you actually do? <laughs> like, you know, like it's just not a good power, but this really reminds me of, you know, in the modern era, when we see Arrow, who is one of the Guthrie, one of the Guthrie siblings, she goes through crucible because she wants to get her powers back and her power is flight. And then at the, you know, after her resurrection, you see her in, you know, in the sky in, and she's just like blazing with joy. And, you know, when you think about it from that perspective, okay, maybe it's not like the most offensive power, but I can see why it would bring you joy because I used to have dreams about flying, right? I used, I, in my dream, I would like climb up like, um, a telephone pole and jump and then i could just feel my body just like soaring through the air and it was exhilarating so i totally get what he's saying here like nobody's gonna have that sensation if they can't do it right so maybe not the best power but i get why you would be sad if you lost that power. <laughs> i think it's the thing that makes him most special it's what stands out in angel's character more than anything to me uh, that and he's the wealthy guy, right? But I think this this ability to be free in the air. I uh, you see writers work with him for years with this, you know, trying to make him special, and then 
when we read the fall of the mutant story much later in continuity and harpoon spears his wings that gives you this tragedy and then they transform him into archangel which is such a brilliant move for this character to make him much more powerful and complex and and resonant with readers but i think this tells us a lot about his uh his psychology here uh juan any thoughts on the angel uh no i you asked him that it really well was, that actually was a really good line that stood out um yeah i've caught there was a the few times like um roy thomas did that like he captures the characters um their essence and what they're what they're feeling at the moment really well like you, you get like these really good moments like those here and there and it's really cool it, like he, the man was a writer yeah. <laughs> definitely the storyteller now this is what happens when gene gray is not with the team they get taken <laughs> down by darts and bolas they fly to San Rico to fight. Jean Grey's still not with them, and they almost get defeated by a cheetah and a snake. A Their jaguar. boat crashes. What's that? Mm-hmm. It's a jaguar, not a cheetah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I totally yes, it is a jaguar. Uh, and then they fall into a pit, and there's a net that falls on top of them, and. <laughs> So they uh, they are not at their finest. These these gentlemen who have fought world conquering threats. Uh, there's the army of Kukulkan is closing in on them with spears, and Iceman forms a shield over the team. And there's a ridiculous panel on page fourteen where Cyclops is kind of blasting a hole out under the ground with his optic blast so that they can uh, dig underneath the ground and surprise the army from behind. Uh, <laughs> This is something we see again and again. It's like dig dug powers. They're just, <laughs> that's not how dirt works. The ground would just collapse on them. But, uh, you know, what was that? So like when the juggernaut mm-hmm. like tunneled under the ground. Yeah, Juggernaut totally did dig dug under at the X Mansion uh, in his first appearance. And it's it's just, uh, it's just <laughs> ridiculous. Um, Iceman has a thick ice shield, if anyone's wondering. It, it is it is thick, and they, they are able to escape. Uh, Regina, will you tell us a little bit about these next few pages as the X-Men finally engage with the army and Kukul Khan? Um, sure. So they're captured. They are escaping. They, you know, they capture the villagers that were um, attacking them and flip the script on them, literally. The, the panel says flip, which was hilarious. <laughs> so they get dumped in the pit that they had uh been captured in um then they go and then like there's these guys in police uniforms and they have rifles and <laughs> they get blocked on the head <laughs> so kukulkan is like wait a minute what the hell are you guys doing here well um you're not welcome here so he basically repels them he like starts using his powers against them and he's like you need to leave and beast is like oh no i can't see because it's so bright <laughs> and then Kukul there Khan is like, there is a lot of yellow in this issue that's yes. a, a huge color palette here it is really and he gets kicked or punched in the chest and then iceman gets upset he's like are you saying that we're like ants uh so now i gotta teach you a lesson except he doesn't teach him a lesson <laughs> um there is a there is a panel where they call him a feather topped furrer and i was like oh no this is not good (laughs) beast figures out what the power source is kukulkan is attacked by cyclops and manages to avoid him and cyclops tags angel by mistake 
oops, my bad. And when Cyclops checks on him, then Cyclops is attacked as well. So it's a very action-packed couple of pages. Um, Bobby has some issues because <laughs> when they are attacked by the natives, he like mm-hmm. he's like, can I just freeze some of them? Like, can I just deep freeze them? I'm like, what are you? No, Bobby, what the hell? <laughs> I went back. I went, I read that twice. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I know you're still a young boy, but no, this is not okay. <laughs> they also call the natives Indians in one panel. Anyone want to tell yeah. us why that's problematic? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you can, I can, I don't care. <laughs> so uh we we covered this briefly last issue but christopher columbus uh landed and he was an ass hat of course uh landed in the uh back in the 1400s and assumed he was in the west indies and so people just started calling everyone who belonged on any of these continents over here indians it's problematic for native americans it's certainly problematic for central and south americans uh, particularly coming from the voice of a white man so that's not an okay thing to say it's much like the word savages it's just not acceptable uh or culturally okay uh anyone who wants to comment on that okay <laughs> we, can, we can move forward we also get a really interesting panel as they're leaving the ground uh, uh angel is thinking to himself i hate to sound like a poor man's hawkeye but i can't seem to stop myself why should gene prefer scott over me now hawkeye is prominent in the avengers uh back then as kind of the bad boy He's constantly arguing with Captain America. He's constantly flirting with the Scarlet Witch. Uh, so uh, Angel thinking of himself as the poor man's Hawkeye is funny. It's kind of showing a trend or a, a through line between the books back then. Um, uh, also, let's let's talk a little bit about the language that the natives of San Rico are speaking. They're speaking a language called Maya Tan. Uh, I, I did not have a chance to research this. Is that a real language? Okay, so the thing about the the Mayans is that there's actually 28 distinctive languages within that specific geographic group of people. And they don't even really call themselves the Mayans. That's just kind of a catch-all phrase. So it's just like here, you know, there were tons and tons of tribes here on the North American continent. And it was the same thing in Central America and South America. There's like all these loosely affiliated tribes. Some of them traded with each other. Some of them were at war with each other. Uh, Mayathan is kind of a catch-all. The actual language, um, cause I did look into that and I can't think of the name. It starts with a Y. I want to say it's Yucatec or something, mm. something like that. Um, yeah, Yucatec. Um, but there are 28 actual distinctive languages. So I think Mayathan is just referring to, you know, that group of languages. I don't know if any of these words are real words because <laughs> I don't speak any of those languages. <laughs> but um, just, you know, I do know a few words in other like native languages from Mexico and South America, and it looks sort of authentic. So I was like, well, Whoever did that research actually didn't do a bad job, but, you know, again, I don't know the actual, if it's an actual, like, words that they're using. 
<laughs> I don't know how much research Troy Thomas put into this, uh, but to to quote this, and I, I'm going to butcher this. By the way, this is a fictional country in Marvel, so there could be <laughs> there could be a lot of things happening as far as the history of this country and these people. But we have one of the natives, uh, the native Sanrican, saying uh, "Mishtek Melok Kotor Kwetlak," to which Beast is responding. My late Mayathon accent is a trifle rusty, but I suspect they're somewhat dis- <laughs> discontented. So of course, Beast is the one that speaks up on this. Uh, it's also possible Kugel Khan is, is uh, mind controlling these men into speaking his language from hundreds of years ago. Uh, but uh, but there, yeah, there's some possibilities there. There's another no prize. I get two no prizes. This year. <laughs> uh, Juan, did you have any thoughts on the portrayal of the natives? Um, well, no, that's okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so as we flip over to page 18, which... Oh my God, uh, we have had so many phallic towers jumping <laughs> out of the ground in the last handful of issues. Uh, but we see this giant feathered tower uh, rumbling out of the ground with Iceman running up the side, covering the top. And I apologize for our <laughs> for our more PG listeners, but it just looks like a penis with a giant swollen head on the top. And I don't know that there's any other way to phrase it. It's, and we've got the gay X-Men running up the side. It is rumbling. There are shaking emanations coming out the top and it makes me so uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> it's okay if there's no comments on this page, but anyone who'd like to say anything, please feel free. Did, did the zap get that thing going down? <laughs> <laughs> so we have a uh, we have Kukulkan hitting the ground. Uh, he's saying, "I shall shake the infernal mutant from his lofty perch and then destroy him." And the sound effect is fazap, and then the building starts shaking all over the place. So yeah, the curse, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's the curse of the pendant causing the tower to vibrate. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> And poor little gay Bobby is having the time of his life. I I think this is his favorite panel of all X-Men history thus far. Uh, in the next panel, he also generates a giant ice pole to save himself, which he's compensating here. He's got a cover somehow. <laughs> You're all being so careful with your commentary today. <laughs> Regina, you're I mean, often the dirtiest in the room. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I started out talking about the well endowed, and you know, everything else just seems like, like it's so obvious. I just feel like I can't even say. <laughs> and not even well endowed. They were super endowed. Yeah, <laughs> super well endowed. Um, but yeah, it's wow. <laughs> Um, flipping back to page 16 for just a second, we have Cyclops calling humans homo sapientes instead of homo sapiens. That's clearly some sort of typo. We can blame it yeah, on the Russian I'm battle. About that. <laughs> we also have Beast referring to the, uh, the snake tower as a stella. I looked up this word, S-T-E-L-A. It means an upright stone slab with inscriptions. So it's kind of like the statue that you'd see hanging over a gravestone. So he's referring to this uh, to this tower as a Stella. And then later, as the tower sinks back into the ground, uh, we see it called a Stella again. So uh, here we are learning new words from the 1960s. Uh, uh, Juan, how do they finally defeat Kukul Khan? Uh, well, <laughs> after the 
the tower if i remember correctly after the tower goes down uh he he just the he loses his powers right after so first they put ice all over the top then he somehow blasts the ground and it rumbles down and after that he he goes back to his regular el tigre form right is that how it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, went that's down? basically what happens yeah there's like a there's like a quick little pause in between that that uh he just he just uh, goes back to his uh his old form uh it's kind of a, a anticlimactic ending after all of this power is expelled everywhere he kind of just runs out of power he just kind of fades back into his human form uh i, I, I was shocked there was only two issues like when when they were um when he flew like earlier when he flew in the in the spear and he's clearing out the forest i'm like okay so how are they gonna beat him and i just i was like the whole time thinking how's this gonna go down and uh yeah the, after the tower leaves he just he loses it all <laughs> but I, and also how he just blasts the floor and the tower goes down and kind of like the curse itself i guess b says is what solves it in a way if if he wasn't a man of science that he would he would say that <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a speech bubble from Bobby on page 20 that kind of wraps it all up. He says, when the idol was swallowed by the earth, our buddy here turned back into plain El Tigre. How do you account for that, Beastie? Uh, and so it's just kind of an anticlimactic ending. Now, this pendant has never been found again. Uh, El Tigre does make a very brief appearance in uh, uh, this series about Kesar, the Lord of the Jungle, way back then. He appears for three issues working with the character Magor, who becomes a character named Mangod. And he meets a very tragic ending. He's still uh, he's still kind of looking for power. Uh, he gets recruited in a particular mission, and due to his own hubris, ends up basically kind of Indiana Jonesing himself into an early death. Uh, so, if you guys want to look that up, you can find uh, some some write ups on on El Tigre on like uh, the, the website, the appendix for the Marvel Universe. Uh, there's there's a write up on him there. You can see kind of how things end for him. Uh, there is another god called Kukulkan that kind of runs around the Marvel Universe a little bit in the Thor comics, but this version of Kukulkan has never come back either. So there are uh, there are stories waiting to be told about this lost pendant under the ground in, uh, in San Rico. Uh, and then at the end of the issue, we get Cyclops uh, grabbing Angel. So earlier he accidentally blasted Angel with his optic blast when he was aiming for Kukulkan. But now he's kind of wondering if uh, if he did this on purpose, subconsciously. Angel wakes up long enough to say, it was Cyclops, he struck out at me on purpose, but I didn't know, uh, Cyclops says, why would I have blasted you deliberately? Angel says, because of Marvel Girl, you love her too. So this is actually really, really profound for these characters. No one has ever spoken about Cyclops' feelings for Gene out loud. Uh, Angel has clearly flirted with Gene a lot, but here we have Angel thinking Cyclops hurt him on purpose to try to make a play at Gene. Uh, what were some of your thoughts on this scene? I mean, Angel's pretty freaking bitter. <laughs> he's, yeah. like, he's like, dude, you took me down basically so you can get the girl. I'm like, the girl's not even there. <laughs> like, she's <laughs> like, she doesn't even know what the hell's going on, and you're complaining about it, which I get it. I've been there, done that, but. You need to chill dash. You need to just chill out. <laughs> Heather, what did you think? I I think it's bullshit. <laughs> 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 like very obviously this kind of shit has happened before. And 
Scott even like calls out. He's like, Angel, stay back. No. And Angel can see that he is directly behind Kukulkan. So like, clearly that's where he was aiming. But because Angel thinks that, you know, Scott can only beat him with women due to trickery and subterfuge. And he's like, you did it on purpose because of Marvel Girl. Girl, you love her too. And then he passes out again. Like, you wake up for like 10 seconds and that's what you're going to say. That's such bullshit. Well, and earlier he was thinking, how could he possibly love, how could she possibly love Cyclops instead of me? There's a... He thinks of himself as a little superior. That's very clear. Well, he grew up real rich. Juan, did you have a a favorite of the original X-Men? Oh, uh, yeah. It it was Cyclops. Yeah. Yeah, of them. Like, we're talking back then, right? Like, in this issue? Like, or, like, just back you know, animated series-wise, or both? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it'd be Cyclops, but uh, in this issue, I think like Beast was so cool. Uh, sort of, he was a walking dictionary, but I like, <laughs> I love his movements. I love the way he was in this issue. He was great. But yeah, like of the originals, yeah, Cyclops is—he was my guy, just mainly for the phasers, if I could be honest. But I thought that was so cool with the eyes. These, uh, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Going back to the thing, I I kind of like the. I, it is BS. I agree. Like I think it's obvious he wasn't trying to hurt Angel, but I like the I like the part where he has a little self doubt at the end. Like if I, if I was a, a a teenage reader, like all this soap opera stuff, I'm not gonna lie. I think I'd be like, oh, like I, I want to see what happens next. Oh, like, I would eat up in a heartbeat as a teenager. <laughs> yep, I yep. live for the angst. <laughs> yes, agreed. Yes, I I love I I love the soap opera ness of it. I, I really do. <laughs> It's really heating up all of all of the love triangle stuff. They've all got these kind of issues melting, but the Angel Cyclops gene, Ted Roberts, all of that kind of is uh, is reaching a boiling point in the next couple of issues. Uh, Heather, I want you to know it's not long before we see Cyclops and Gene go on an actual date. It's about fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very awkward, I'll tell you in advance. <laughs> I have no doubt. Scott Summers is one of the most awkward individuals I've ever seen. <laughs> These last two issues, I feel like we're actually kind of a fun read when you take them together uh, as, as just kind of a two issue arc. Uh, it's, it's a fun story. The X-Men are not at their finest by any means, but we get a really impressive villain overall, a lot of soap opera, and it's, uh, it's kind of a fun story. What were your impressions, if any, uh, if you read the two issues as a whole? Did you, did you guys like this story overall? I was more impressed with it than I expected to be. I expected to be like, oh, you got to be kidding me, like 90% of the time, Mm -hmm. but it was only like 30% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, when um, over on my podcast, we interviewed Bob McLeod some months back. And, you know, even though Dylan and I both grew up in an era where computers were not, you know, at our fingertips, we've had them for so long that, you know, we're like dumb, right? And we're like, um... So Bob, when you guys did your research back in the day, how did you do it? You didn't have the internet. He's like, we had the library. I was like, oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I can tell somebody went to the library. They checked out a bunch of books about, you know, Mesoamerican history and like, 
the animals that they chose for the story are all very important to Mesoamerican um, historical gods and myths and things like that. So they chose like the jaguar, which is huge. The jaguar is constantly seen in Mesoamerican art and stories and, you know, within the pantheon of the gods. They chose the caiman, which is, again, this, you know, very special symbol, you know, and they chose, of course, the serpent. And of course, Kukulkan is like the feathered serpent, right? So there was some, definitely there was some research that was done to even get to this point. But like, you know, Juan mentioned earlier, there's a few times when you look at Kukulkan and he's not really Mesoamerican. He's more like that Spanish conquistador, like on page 13, he's standing there with his cape and he's got his hands on his mm -hmm. hips. And that's a very Spanish stance and the way that his clothes are presented in that particular panel that's a very Spanish way of appearing. Um, and there's a couple of times where you can see the back of his hat and it's like an, like, it's like one of those fancy Spanish hats that the conquistadors would wear. <laughs> so I did notice that after he said that, I was like, wait. So when I'm looking at the panels, I'm like, wait, this is a little more Spanish than I was expecting it to be. <laughs> so I thought that was very interesting, but also the way that he, the portrayal of the people that you know he's saying you know hey people let's you know come redo our culture and they're all different kinds of people right and that's really how it is in a lot of latin american countries is you know we have a large you know number of people who are indigenous to the area and then we have you know the mestizos who are the children of you know all of the mixing that happened before and then we have like the spanish people who are still you know they still they don't call it a caste system but it's a caste system and you know mm -hmm. they're still mostly white <laughs> so they are all portrayed within the story like when you look at the different people that are you know guarding the 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 ruins and everything it's like I didn't expect to see that. So that was really interesting. And I really appreciate that level of detail, even though, you know, again, not 100% was right. A lot more was right than I expected it to be. And then one, let me ask you the same question. As a storyteller, as you look at these two issues, what stood out to you? What did you love? Uh, it's pretty much the same as um, as Regina. I, I also was... I. I'm not gonna lie. When I saw the cover, when 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 you told me this was the issue, and I saw the cover, I I was like, uh oh, like I saw the word, <laughs> I saw the word Holocaust, and I saw I saw Kukan, and I knew what year this was made, and I'm like, oh, okay, let's let's do this. And actually, there was <laughs> yeah, it was. You could definitely see there was there was some attention paid here. They you could see the research. Like I mean, as I was researching this issue. Well, not the issue, but some of the background in this issue. Yeah, they, you could tell they, they put some time and effort. And I never felt like anyone was trying to, like, characterize um, Latin Americans or anything. They, they, they seem very, like, respectful, like, at least for, for the time, especially. Like, they seem really well thought out. And in addition to that, like, these two issues, boy, were they meaty. Like, they... <laughs> Like I think a good comic is a, is a like if you, a, a good issue is like a good meal and this is a, a whole like your breakfast lunch and dinner this is <laughs> it's a feast this, yes it was a feast yeah, exactly yes exactly no it was it was a feast I yeah I, I had it really did feel like every page was, was there was a lot to take in a lot of character study there was. It was a lot of story here. 
but it, it was i liked it overall i really did like it uh, and the ending yeah I, I really think they did a good job at building him but yeah defeating him was was a little suspect but other than that i, I really enjoyed it all I, I thought it was great and i thought the portrayal of uh latin american people here i'm pretty sure you covered it in the last issue so i won't get too much into it yeah there's some eyebrow raising parts but overall I, I think they handled it very well and yeah i really enjoyed the story and like i love the soap opera-ness and I, I love anytime stan popped in with his notes that was like the best and yeah i, I enjoyed it overall I, uh, I I feel the same. Now, you said this issue was meaty. Nothing was more meaty, however, than Kukul Khan's power. You know, I, the title was unfortunate. I still, I'm, I'm hoping my suspicions aren't correct because there was no Holocaust. And then they used the word Führer and I was like, no, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> now, the only, the only time the word Holocaust was mentioned in the issue outside of the title is when Professor X was talking about the background of Kukulkan and the pendant and how the volcano, uh, wiped out some of Kukulkan's people in a Holocaust. So right. I think that's the only reference and that one in, in that context, it's used correctly, but it's still, right. it's just a term best to be left alone. Overall. Yeah. It's just, oh, yikes. And I mean, like, you mentioned earlier, you know, the Age of Apocalypse character, Holocaust. I understand why people would not like that, but given what he was doing, it was appropriate for what he, he for what he was created to do, basically. Yeah, he was a genocidal um, character. Yeah, he was a very evil person, and he did perpetuate a Holocaust, so I understand why they would have used that word. It's an unfortunate word, and, you know, but overall, yeah, I... I was more impressed than I expected to be last issue and this issue. So <laughs> uh, when I advertise this, uh, <laughs> it's going to say, uh, you know, episode number 26, Holocaust featuring Juan Ponce. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope, I hope that's okay, Juan, and people who listen will understand the context. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll try to put a disclaimer in there. I hope that's okay. Yeah, okay, so it's after Comunidades, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> printing shortage. I don't know if they've fully printed them out yet. <laughs> so uh, let me get your thoughts on the cover for the next issue quickly. We'll be covering X-Men number 27 next week, which is Re-Enter the Mimic. Uh, what are your initial thoughts just looking at the cover? Gene is back in it. Gene's <laughs> back! <laughs> no angel this time no angel Ooh. Mm. and there's lots of ice and a big stick well there's a big stick and a big club <laughs> <laughs> and in order to re-enter the mimic that means you had to enter him once initially <laughs> uh, you guys what a pleasure to be here with you we uh we uh, are gonna wrap things up here where can people find each of you online uh, uh, one go first. Yeah. So on Twitter, I'm at, at, at El Ozymandias, and you could find my stories. Most of them are free on uh, PonceComics.com. Uh, and the ones that you can't find for free, you can get on Comixology for just two bucks. Uh, and they're very good yeah. and very worth the read. So the, the issues that we talked about today, uh, please look them up. Uh, one's a, a 
tremendous writer. And I'm so excited to see not only Caminadatis, but whatever you have coming forward. I'm, I'm really looking forward to those announcements. Thank you. I wish I could talk about any of them. <laughs> Regina, how about you? Um, everyone can find me on Instagram and Twitter at the Red Queen of X. You can also look up our podcast at House of X Podcast on both of those platforms. Um, and on Facebook, you can also check out my House of X group that I help admin. It's a fun group, lots of love in there. So if you haven't checked us out, check us out. Just make sure you answer all of the um, entry questions and agree to the rules, please. <laughs> I'm in that group as well. It is really wonderful. And uh, outside of my own podcast, uh, House of X is my very favorite. Uh, I listen to it all the time. Thank uh, you. And Heather, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Heather underscore Beth underscore. And then uh, I'm Chad. You can find me. I keep my own social media private, but you can find Gray Malkin on uh, Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, or on Instagram. I'm posting uh, content from the issues as we go. Uh, next week, we will be back with uh, X-Men number 27 called Re-Enter the Mimic with special guest star Juan Ferreira, the incredible Marvel artist. And we are so excited to, uh, to have him on. Uh, so thank you, each of you, for spending your Sunday evening with me. Uh, I will be in touch. And uh, what an honor to have a... Uh, have, uh, uh, this communion this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, see you guys back next time on Gray Malkin Lane.